Welcome back to the Cover Up. I am one of your co-hosts, Selena Papianis, and I'm here with my ever-so-charming other co-hosts, uh, Nathan Radke. Hello. And Lee Kunla. Hi. How are you guys doing? I'm doing okay. Yeah? I feel, inappropriately, I feel very calm. I what? feel very calm and relaxed. Oh, yes. I see why that's inappropriate, because of our topic today. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> what is our topic today? That was... I you mean, are so relaxed. This is going to take a while. Yeah. <laughs> we're how, are so we gonna pan- how are we going to get you panicked? <laughs> we're so relaxed, I didn't even work on that segue very well. <laughs> <laughs> like, if I had been less relaxed, I would have, before we started recording, I would have thought, okay, we got to think of a good segue. But I was just sitting here in Elena's backyard. We're socially distanced from each other. And I was like, it's, 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 it's sunny outside. Sunny. We got and, cicadas. And now I'm the Segway guy, which we know is going to be a disaster. That's so, actually a good point. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that Lee is, oh, the fact that Lee's going to do the Segway is oh, making man. me very nervous now. Oh. I can feel Are you a starting bit of, to panic I'm a little bit? Panic. I am feeling a little feeling anxious a little bit now. Hey, I'm getting the hang yeah. of this Segway stuff. So, I mean, that was. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm trying <laughs> here. I'm trying. Just leave me Where are we going to start today? So we're talking I, about something. I'm back on. I'm okay. back on. Here we back, go. Here back we go. to my okay. panicky self. Normally, we're recording these in the bunker, and the panic just sort of manifests it's itself with That's the right. cement walls. Yeah. yeah. Elena's backyard's too nice. It's too luscious back here. But the cement walls of my head are starting <laughs> to close in now. <laughs> this is a topic that we've actually talked around for dozens of episodes. Oh yeah. This is such an important idea, but we haven't really done a deep dive into this idea itself. And the idea, of course, is this notion of mass panic. Mass panic. Yeah, I think it's interesting for us in the sense that a lot of what we're going to talk about aren't really conspiracies today, but this is such a central concept for understanding how conspiracies develop as social phenomena, as things that go beyond just one person having an idea and really kind of infecting large groups of people with fear about some unknown danger or some vaguely defined danger. And there are some real sociological mechanisms behind that. And that's one of the things we wanted to talk about today under the concept of mass panic and also, I think, moral panic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because those are two related but we can still like separate those two concepts. There, It's an important distinction, would even you though it's s- going to seem subtle. Would you say a moral panic is kind of a subset of a mass panic? Or like a version of a mass panic? I think it's going to be even more complicated than that. Yeah, okay. Do we have a uh, ready definition that we could start off uh, the podcast with just so that we have a vague understanding of what we're talking about? Well, a mass panic is exactly what it sounds like. A group of human beings all freaking the hell out (laughs) over something that they shouldn't be freaking the hell out over. Right. And And it's usually fed by certain things, even, well, like the media, we'll see some cases where the media ends up kind of feeding these panics as well by like putting out stories that then put it in this, in public sort of consciousness more. And then it, then you have more, you know, panic around it. Yeah, exactly. If you think about the way humans were for tens of thousands of years, you would get panicky if you saw the person beside you start to panic, which makes perfect sense mm-hmm. evolutionarily speaking, because the person beside you maybe just saw a bear. And you didn't see the bear, but you see the person beside you panicking. So it makes sense for the human brain to, it's like a kind of empathy. Yeah, you it's feel catchy. Exactly. Yeah. You feel someone else's panic. But as Elena points out, we now don't exist in a small group of 20, 30 people. We exist in a world of 7 billion people who are all connected through mass media. And so that allows what Lee describes, I think, very correctly as the infection of panic to spread instantly because of the collapse of time and space that's caused by communications technologies. Mm -hmm. Now, I feel like there's a lot of things to panic about. There seems to be something somewhat... I don't want to say quite derogatory, but a bit condescending about calling it a panic. Hmm. You you know, if, 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 I don't know, um, you're in, I'm trying to think of an example very far away and a long time ago, so no one gets offended. But if you're in England and the Spanish Armada is coming, you know, and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, we're going to die. Is this, this seems like a lot of people would be freaking out about this and seems very legitimate. I think it's an interesting, again, it's an interesting distinction. When we talk about mass panics, it isn't just a large group of people who are worried about something. Because as you say, there are lots of occasions when large groups of people should be worried about something. You can make the argument that often 
the problem is people aren't worried enough about something that's happening. Mm. But I think the idea of panic is interesting because panic, it does seem kind of derogatory because mm -hmm. panic seems sort of useless. Right. What do they always say in any kind of situation? Yeah, don't, well, <laughs> don't, don't panic. panic. Yeah. Don't panic. Right, because it implies you're out of control, you're not thinking rationally, you're not behaving rationally. It's kind of chaotic. Yeah. Oh, I mean, there's very few situations that we would come across where afterwards I would say, Lee, thank goodness you panicked there. Yeah, right. yeah. No, uh, that's a good point because I'm thinking just as you say this, in an emergency situation, let's say you're in a building and a fire starts, uh, I would certainly be very scared under that uh, circumstance and yet freaking out and panicking is not going to make anything any mm -hmm. better. I'm going to leave the building, right? I'll use the emergency exits and all of that. So I don't know if my behavior might be that different, but that extra layer of emotional turmoil and fear may in fact, as you say, Elena, make me less rational. Mm -hmm. Certainly doesn't seem to add anything constructive. Right. Yeah, if you're running around the building, waving your arms in the air, screaming, that isn't as useful as figuring out, okay, this is a genuine threat. How do we respond to it? Pull the alarm, warn everybody else, like stay low to the ground, all of these sort of rational responses. And so when we say mass panic, it also has this element. This isn't people reacting to a genuine threat in a reasonable way. Mm -hmm. It's people reacting sometimes to a phantom threat in an absurd way. Okay. Or might I also add a distinction, potentially a real threat, but in an unreasonable way. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. Now, if it, we have been defining, as I understand it, mass panic is moral panic specifically. Does that require at this point a, a yet a different definition for us to move on? Mass panic is simply a large group of people who are freaking out. Okay. Moral panic is specifically that there is a threat to the nature of your society. Uh -huh. Mass panic can be something like, oh, there's an immediate physical danger mm -hmm. to There's me. an asteroid coming. Yeah. Whereas, not, not really. Yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> for all you listeners, alert. yeah. Yeah. For anybody who just tuned into yeah, the podcast yeah. <laughs> there is like six minutes one. in. Well, because yeah. we're talking about War of the Worlds later. I yeah. thought uh, there should be a disclaimer here that uh, <laughs> I, I just was using it and making an example. Very responsible mm -hmm. of it. <laughs> Okay, so an asteroid is a real danger, and we could all collectively be afraid of it. Um, but it's not a threat to the social fabric of your society. Right, That's where I the see. moral part comes in, okay. is that, oh, wait, there is a, some kind of agent, there is some kind of group, hmm. there is some sort of individual organization that is a threat to the way we do things. Mm -hmm. So, so to like our, witches or communists? Yeah, those would both be moral panics. Right, if Whereas you're afraid of witches. nuclear destruction. Huh. Now, wait, I'm confused. Is that moral or, or not moral? If you had a situation, I would say that <laughs> one's not a moral panic. <laughs> okay. If you had a situation where people thought that there was about to be a nuclear war, but there wasn't, they were incorrect, that would be a mass panic. Okay. But moral panic is more insidious. Mass panic is mm -hmm. something is happening right now, hmm. and we've got to deal with it. Moral panic is there's something sneaky going on behind the scenes. Right, spies, subversives, that kind or of stuff. Or subtext in something that's meant uh -huh. to like uh -huh. poison the minds of the youth. Right, 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 okay. Right, like when the like the Teletubbies back in the right. 90s, <laughs> when everybody got worked up Wait, about that. Wait, weren't they actually meant to poison the minds of the youth? <laughs> that sounds like an entirely different episode. Maybe the easiest thing to do is if we go through some examples. Okay. Yes, that's good. All right. I'm going to and, take and you guys... Oh. Yeah, true to form. Sorry, uh, I'm terrible at segues, but true to form. He's going to try again. <laughs> you yeah. are start Well, I just wanted to set the scene that you're starting us nice and early, like 200 years ago. Yes, that's true. Is that a segue or is it a setup? That's a setup. That's a setup. Setup I'm okay at. Yeah, he's a good setup. Segway would be like, speaking of 200 years ago, after yeah, yeah, Nathan yeah. talked about something 200 years ago and then you talked about something else 200 years ago. That is a segue. Yeah. <laughs> I'm writing this down. All right, let me take you guys back. 200 years ago to an area that I actually know really well and love the the little tiny area uh, in London England called Hammersmith one of my favorite spots on earth I love it uh, for our English listeners I spent a lot of time hanging out or I used to in the before times mm -hmm. on like Goldhawk Road and Shepherd's Bush Market and Ravenscourt Park I just I love that area well in 1803 my beloved area of Hammersmith was in the grips of something terrible. Something was stalking the darkened nighttime streets of Hammersmith. Something terrifying. 
Now, there was a story being passed around that a woman, unnamed woman, which should always make us a little bit suspicious of a story, was taking a shortcut through a church uh, graveyard not far from Ravenscourt Park when she was grabbed by some kind of spectral figure that was very tall and clad in white. Now, she fainted and was found later just wandering around the graveyard, but she never recovered and she died two days later. There was a ghost in Hammersmith, a murderous ghost. Now, more people started to report this apparition and people started to get pretty frightened. People were afraid to go out at night, but they still wanted to go to the pub. So then how do you Honestly. do that? Ooh, the dilemma. <laughs> That's quite a dilemma. Yeah. There's a murderer, but That's I need to drink. <laughs> and so this goes on for three months. The people of Hammersmith are living in absolute terror. There are all sorts of newspaper articles about it. Uh, there are stories that are circulating amongst the, the people who live there. They start to look for explanations for why this is the case. And one of the explanations that starts to come out, again, an unnamed man, which is also, again, sort of makes us suspicious, had taken his own life and had been buried in a church cemetery. And because that goes against the religious rules of the society, that caused him to be a ghost, which caused him to walk around going, So what do you think the response was? There's a ghost. What should we do? Did they go ghost hunting? They went ghost hunting. with uh, Things that can't even kill a ghost? Well, guns. They went out with guns. (laughs) Okay. And the idea was, I don't know much about ghosts, but isn't one of the main things about them is that they can go through yes, stuff? Yes, yeah. Well, this, is a, this, was, this accounts for all that silence when you put the question, because yeah. clearly I'm like, yeah, pitchforks and guns. I mean, that's what we need to do now. But then it's like, wait, but it's well, but a ghost. Ghosts. That's not so going to work. that's not going to work. Oh, but it, they tried anyway. It worked just fine. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, so they formed armed militias, and there are armed militias now stalking the streets of Hammersmith looking for this ghost. And on a damp and cold evening, because it was London, in January 1804, there was a militiaman named Francis Smith, and he's out on patrol. Again, not too far from, from Ravenscourt Park. He sees the ghost with his own eyes. Tall, clad in white, like giving off this sort of weird glow. And he takes out his gun, and he fires around right into that ghost. And, you wouldn't expect this, totally works. Apparently Uh-oh. guns totally work on ghosts. Uh-oh. Yeah. Did he just turn somebody into a ghost? Uh, yeah, he forced somebody to give up the ghost. Ugh. Because what he did was he shot a man named Thomas Millwood, who was a plasterer. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. So he was just covered in, like, white dust. He was covered in white oh, dust. Oh, man. He was wearing the traditional clothing of the plasterer, oh. which are, like, sort of white, billowy clothes was shot in the face and killed. Now, Francis Smith, the patrolman, uh, he was charged with murder, and he was found guilty and sentenced to hang. But that was commuted because of the odd circumstances, because of the the nature of this Mm -hmm. panic. It was commuted to one year of hard labor. Hmm. But, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because this happens in 1803. In 1803... It's at the dawn of, like, the Napoleonic Wars in England. This is a scary time. Not only that, you have all this technological change, massive social and economic changes. I mean, what is happening in England in at the beginning of the 19th century? We have sort of this drive towards urbanization and industrialization. We're seeing this kind of, this moment where your traditional views are clashing with new scientific views. It was a very scary, strange time. And in those scary, strange times, we're more prone to panics, uh, w- unfortunately, which in this case resulted in the death of Thomas Millwood. Wow. But let's move forward. Let's move forward a hundred years. Now, we're out in the backyard. And one of the things I love about backyards is that they're full of insects. I mean, Elena, you've planted stuff in your garden specifically to yes, attract some to insects. to attract some insects, yeah. Like There's what? a fuzzy caterpillar down on one of those. Um, oh, I have one of those. They're, they're, they're adorable, like a yellow fuzzy one, yeah. yeah. So you want the fuzzy caterpillars. Yeah. What are the other bugs that you want to get? Uh, butterflies. Because they're so pretty. They're so pretty. Yeah. Bees. Bees, bees for sure. Yeah. I love bees. Here's what you don't want. You don't want assassin bugs. A what bug? An assassin, assassin bug. bug. Huh. 
Uh, no, I kind of so, do actually. Well, <laughs> you can't train them though, Lee. Oh, no. okay. Yeah. Never mind. Then. Yeah. <laughs> you can't use them to do your bidding. So the assassin bug is small, slow. It's got long legs. It's got this really long, sharp proboscis. That's a nose? Yeah, it's sort of a nose that you eat. I only know that because he was pointing at his nose. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's like if you ate through your nose and you also stabbed people with your nose. Right, right, okay. Okay. And this is what they do. They crawl on you as you're sleeping, and they drink blood from your lips and eyelids. Ugh. Where do they live? Well, they actually do live in North America, but for the most part, they live in Central and South America. Oh, okay. There are some versions of the assassin bug or the kissing bug, as it's sometimes called, because it gets you in the lips. Hmm. In June 20th, 1899, slow news day, the Washington Post uh, has an article called The Bite of a Strange Bug, which explains this, this insect and the way that it stalks people and crawls on them in the middle of the night and then drinks out of their eyeballs. What do you think immediately happens after this newspaper article comes out? Like a million reports of people saying that their eyeballs were, were you know, part of... What, 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 what do you call that even? Eyeballs were... Drank? <laughs> drunk? Drank? Drank? They were drinked? I don't, I don't know. That's why I got person. stuck there. Yeah. I'm like, what's the proper grammar on I've this I've never one? been able to conjugate that. No. Something was drinking out of your eyeball. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In fact, in the summer of 1899, it was basically the summer of the kissing bug. Uh, there, I came across 60 newspaper articles, contemporary newspaper articles, about attacks. Hmm. There's one from July 6th, a uh, kissing bug made him spit. There was a guy who was arrested for publicly spitting, and he said, no, it's because uh, a kissing bug got me. Boston Daily Globe, July 6th, same day, fatal bite of a kissing bug. Somebody who was bit by one of these bugs and died. Killed by kissing bug, the Chicago Daily Tribune, July 19th. How did they make that connection, though? That if they, why would they have made that connection? So they're dead. How can they, how can you know that they were bitten by this? Well, because you knew from all the newspaper articles that there was like an epidemic of these bugs crawling around. So they everybody. just concluded someone died suddenly in their sleep. It must have been the bug. Must have been the bug. Must have been the bug. Must have been the kissing okay. bug. Uh, weirdly, it, it sort of grabbed all of society. Fashion. It entered the world of fashion. I found another article, July 16th, in the Washington Post, Kissing Bug, the Latest Thing in Jewelry. Oh. Because it had so grabbed everyone's attention, the more daring women were wearing jewelry, like... Long proboscis? Shocking. Yeah, from, lo- their, from their ears. <laughs> exactly. It's a good look. So it was everywhere. There was poems written about it. Wow. And I'll read you one. Yeah. <laughs> Swift, with undiscerning glee... Through the land he goes, kissing once you on the lips or on the chin or nose. Mm, okay. <laughs> it's it's kind of cute. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know enough about poetry to know if that's a good poem. Now, here's the thing. Now we're going to get into correlation, causation, that kind of thing. The cities with the most reported cases, and there were so many people showing up at doctor's offices with cases of being bit by these bugs. The cities with the most reported cases were all in the northeast. Now, there aren't a lot of kissing bugs in that area, but there were a lot of competing newspapers. Mm. So here we have to ask the question, were the bug attacks the cause of all the newspaper reports, or is it the newspaper reports that's the cause of all of Mm -hmm. the perceived bug attacks? I mean, as you were telling your stories, what was coming to mind was just the impact of the media and just like it really drives home the need for responsible reporting on things and like fact checking getting all the background stories confirming details um which i know is at least i I think is a lot better today there's a lot more responsibility but i'm sure there's some you know some publications who don't do their due diligence but it definitely seems like a, a media influencing experience kind of phenomena and at the time newspapers were basically the only form of mass media and they were so competitive so competitive they'd uh, say anything yeah exactly yeah. i mean we've we've talked about this i don't think we've ever talked about it on the podcast we just talk about it in our daily lives uh the destruction of the uss maine right mm-hmm. i mean that was an event where it seemed like newspapers really started pushing this narrative which was happening about the same time as this kissing bug scare newspapers were pushing the narrative that the spanish had blown up an american battleship and we needed to go to war and this was done not because of good journalism, 
but because of a drive to have sensational headlines right. sell more newspapers. And to jump on the same story, like, they're covering it, now we need to cover it, we need to yeah. get our story. So it's like this competitive... I, I, I want to just um, dwell on this for just a second to, to strengthen the connection that Nathan made at the beginning that I found for me in learning all about this made the concept of a moral and a mass panic more plausible. And that's just how influenced we are by others and what we believe that their take on reality is. And so, you know, if, if one of you two comes up with an idea, a theory, it's not as though I'm going to be completely knocked off my chair and, you know, unable to critically reason my way through it and come up with my own opinion. That's very different, though, when the sense is that everybody feels one mm -hmm. way about something. So, and, and that's often what the newspapers produce, is a feeling that this is how others see the world. And in as much as I'm either just learning about it, or if I disagree with it, I'm kind of on the outside. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't have any referent for that. I might, like every other newspaper reader, be like, I am not really sure about this. But then another report comes out, and another report, and then my neighbor starts talking about it, my kids start coming home from school with stuff. And at some point, it really does take actual active work not to be bowled over by these opinions of others. And I feel like it almost, I think, goes beyond just whether it's ethical reporting or not. Because right. we'll encounter this later that actually it'll, the, the, the articles that will say stuff like, oh, this isn't really a thing, do as much to stoke the sense that something's going on as the articles that said there wasn't something right, going there. Right, because they're feeding the same narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Don't look there. There's right. nothing to see. Is still talking about, you know, the yeah, last that article. Thing. Don't, that don't thing. Don't talk about that elephant. Don't right? even think about that exactly. elephant. And Ex then you're thinking about the elephant. That's exactly yeah. it, right? Don't think about the elephant. But another point, um, another thing to your point is this, I mean, it's a psychological uh, phenomenon too where this idea of conforming mm -hmm. to other people's ideas is it the ash line what's it called that ash, experiment, ash experiment where um people are oh, all yeah. in the same room right. and they see there's three different lines of different uh or two are the same right two are the same length one isn't and they're all asked which ones are the same length and um and it's very clear which one is it's very clear and so uh, let's say i'm the person who's like not in on the experiment and i'm just being experimented on i might at first be very confident in saying oh well it's for sure b but then if there's five people ahead of me that say A, 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 by the time it gets to me, I'm going to be second guessing myself. Yeah. I'm also not going to want to feel and look like a big outsider who maybe doesn't know what they're talking about if I don't say the same one as them. So it's like this in the same way you're reading yeah. these reports, you don't want to be that person who's like not subscribing to the same yeah. thing. It's harder to do that. We're, we're such social creatures. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the reasons why I think that this kissing bug scare was an example of mass panic rather than an example of an actual bug infestation is if you look at some of the descriptions of the bugs that people said they saw. One man in New Jersey said it was six inches long. Huh. That's not a bug. <laughs> One man in Brooklyn said it had two long fangs and a head like a rat. Wow. I'm going to guess... He saw a rat, probably. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is, interestingly, they did find out that the kissing bug, the assassin bug, can carry a deadly disease, Shaga's disease, which can kill people. But the thing is, it kills you, like, decades after you were bit. Oh. This isn't something that kills you immediately. It is a serious disease and something that people should be, you know, concerned about. But that's not what was happening in 1899 in the American Northeast. Because... Those weren't uh, kissing bugs, and the people who died, they were not dying from Shagus disease. Huh. I kind of want one of those little medallions, though. That sounds really yeah. attractive. I'll, I'll look at Maybe Etsy has one somewhere. So I've got a third one, and this one's the most famous one ever, but I think we've got a weird twist on this one. All right, now, of course, we've all heard of the War of the Worlds broadcast. Yep. Mm-hmm. So what's the basic story behind the War of the Worlds broadcast by Orson Welles in... 1934, I, I think. This feels like the kind of thing we should have looked yeah, up we before looked we started up. recording. I just looked down at my paper and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hadn't written down <laughs> the date. Like, no, was like, I don't ah. have the date. Um, well, isn't it just that he does a radio broadcast? Or yeah, he. But it's fictional, and he's telling a story about aliens invading. Yeah, based on the very 
well-known novel by H.G. Right. Wells, War of the Worlds. And so, but he's, but it sounds very authentic and very, I don't know, contemporary. It sounds like it's happening. Yeah, it, it's set up in a very clever way in yeah. that it's set up like a radio broadcast, which right. is then interrupted by an invasion from Mars. Right. And if you've never listened to it, I highly recommend it. It's it's pretty it's pretty riveting. Well, and just to add to that, what the, what because uh, we're going to get to it, what causes the panic is that people tuned in late to the radio show. Right. So if you had begun uh, listening to this, you would know that you were listening to a story. And those people didn't freak out, as I understood it. But of course, there are people who came late and they turn on the radio in the midst of a news broadcast uh, broadcasting the arrival of aliens. It was 1938. How did you do that so fast? I'm still typing. Okay. It's because you've got a rotary phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it takes longer on those. It's true. Now, even more famous than the broadcast itself, of course, is the response to the... Uh, the the broadcast. This is one of the most famous mass panics in American history. Apparently so famous that it like uh, got Stalin to develop a whole new area of spycraft all hmm. about disinformatia, right? That disinformation comes from his understanding of the response that Americans had to war of the world. Yeah, because Stalin realized, oh, like fear, it's so easy to cause fear in people. It's so easy to use the mass media to give people bad information or disinformation. And so it's like a textbook example of a mass panic. But here's the really fascinating thing that I've only recently learned, because that's the story as I've always understood it. Yeah. And I'm sure I've even done lectures yeah. where I've been talking about mass panic and I've used the idea of war of the worlds. Here's the thing. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that people <laughs> actually panicked from this from this story. The one thing that people know about that broadcast is that everybody lost their ever-loving minds. There doesn't seem to be any actual evidence for it in police records, in hospital records, in death records. None of it. In fact, only about 2% of the population was even listening to the show. It was based on a very famous book that people would have known. They said several times during the broadcast, this is a radio play right. of War of the Worlds. But what's interesting is the day after it's, it's run, the newspapers are filled with stories. Here's one with the old-timey headline. This is the New York Times. Radio listeners in panic, taking war drama as fact. Many flee homes to escape gas raid from Mars. Phone calls swamp police at broadcast of Wells Fantasy. There were a ton of newspaper articles mm -hmm. about how people were losing their minds. Mm. But there's no evidence that people actually were. It's that media again. I'm going to shake my fist at them. Media. <laughs> so here's something. F here's a, a quote from that article. Uh, should I do the whole thing in the old-timey accent? I think you're committed now. Yeah. Oh, boy. A wave of mass hysteria. I'm good at that. Yeah. A wave of mass hysteria sees thousands of radio listeners between 8.15 and 9.30 o'clock. Last night, when a broadcast of a dramatization of H.G. Wells' fantasy, The War of the Worlds. War in particular is fun to say in that accent. Mm -hmm. War led thousands to believe that an interplanetary conflict had started with invading Martians, spreading wide death and destruction in New Jersey and New York. It's turning into a different accent. Mm -hmm. The broadcast, which disrupted households, interrupted religious services, created traffic jams, and closed communication systems was made by Orson Welles, at least... A score of adults required medical treatment for shock and hysteria. How many is a score? 24, like, isn't, isn't it? it? Is that a four score and seven? I thought a score was 12. But whatever, whatever a okay. score is, a score of people did not, not freak out. Yeah. Like I said, the hospitals reported no influx of cases. There was no deaths reported, even though I swear I have heard of when one. this is... I've heard of one, too. I've heard of one as well, yeah. yeah. Was yeah. it like a heart attack or like some... I can't remember, but I've heard of one as well. Yeah. And I, I'm sure that probably between 8.15 and 9.30 o'clock, as I said in the, in yeah. the newspaper <laughs> article, somebody probably did somebody die died, of a heart attack. for sure, yeah. But unless they yelled out, this is because of the Martians yeah, yeah. and killed over, <laughs> we can't be sure it was because of the of the actual broadcast. Sorry, fact check, a score is 20. Okay. Uh, Ooh, okay. okay, makes sense. All right, so why do we believe this then? Why do we believe that this caused such panic? I'm going to make the argument. The newspapers had a bit of a, an interest in slagging radio hmm. in the late 1930s. Hmm. Radio Good was a point. new yes, medium. Yes, totally yeah, yeah, competing yeah. medium. Yeah, and you can read all these articles from the time where newspapers 
newspaper articles were saying things like, clearly radio has some growing up to do before we can trust it as a, right. as a source, like you can trust right. us. Right, right, right. So it's setting it up as kind of a threat in a way, saying like, look what happened here. All these people panicked. It was a disaster. I could imagine there were a couple of people, uh, even back then, the United States is a large country and even 2%. That's a lot of people. That's true. So I'm sure there's somebody who turned in, tuned in late, heard what was going on, shut off the radio. Yeah, totally. You know, phoned five friends yeah. and then like, you know, ran to a bomb shelter or yeah. something. But I'm also sure uh, that the Coast Guard, and I've actually, I have read this, the Coast Guard back in the 1960s would occasionally get a phone call from somebody saying, listen, there's a bunch of shipwrecked people on an island. You've got to go save them. There's the skipper of the ship. And his first movie, <laughs> and there's a movie star, and there's a millionaire and his wife, and the rest. Oh, my God. That really happened? That really happened, wow. but not very often. Right, wow. right, right. But, yeah, of course, I'm sure there were some people. But the story is that, like, the thing that we know about War of the Worlds is it caused mass panic, but it did not. Yeah. Right. There's no evidence for it. So I'm going to make the argument, and this is a segue. Here we go. <laughs> I'm going to make the argument that what happened with War of the Worlds wasn't a mass panic. It was a moral yeah. panic about Ooh. the dangers yeah. of radio. I'm, right, I'm right, into right. that. I see it. I'm really into that. Mic drop. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So. I mean, the, the thing with a segue that good. Yeah. You got is that it's left. actually difficult to follow. Yeah. I, we don't I'm, know where I'm to go. I'm stunned. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the irony of the really good segue. Pick my jaw up from the ground and uh, try and carry on. So um, I'll do an awkward segue instead. <laughs> hey, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Nathan. Who's Stanley Cohen? <laughs> oh, that's well. That's okay, that was awful. Um, so to answer Nathan's question, Stanley Cohen is uh, was in the 1960s a uh, PhD student who develops a concept of moral panics that he's published in a book that we have read and we're basing this podcast on. The book is called uh, Moral Panic and Folk Devils and, or sorry, it's actually Folk Devils and Moral Panics. And uh, he, he's the one who really brings this as a concept into the world. Now, I'm actually, in order to talk about him, I'm going to talk about a a panic that he was interested in because it was happening around the time that, or it happened shortly before he's doing his uh, dissertation in England. And so this becomes his subject and I found it really interesting. So anyway, it starts in May, 1964. There are these bank holidays. So they're like extended weekends that happen, uh, well, everywhere, but also in England. And it seems that uh, the thing to do was if you were a young person old enough to sort of you know go out like a late teenager early 20s you could ride of, the train by yourself you could ride the train by yourself you could overnight somewhere you know that kind of stuff so what what people of this age were doing college students say is they were going to seaside uh, resort towns in brighton and margate and places like that and these are kind of old school I mean, I, I like Agatha Christie and a lot of her <laughs> murder mysteries are set in places like this, which are these sort of like seaside resorts where you would go with your family. And, I love Brighton. Imagine and, just English people in striped chairs. Yes, exactly. And yes. And it's quite cold. It's very cold. <laughs> the, the beach but is they're making, rocks. They're making the best of it, you yeah. know. <laughs> and so apparently, now in the 60s in England, you have, as you had before, but they're maybe more pronounced in their what they're wearing you have very distinctive youth cultures and specifically you have the rockers and this is basically like young men mostly who are into motorcycles and they wear they're they're they seem to be mostly from working class backgrounds and they wear their motorcycle gear also when they're not on motorcycles so leather jackets jeans uh steel toe boots that kind of thing so you have the rockers on the one hand, and you have the mods on the other. Now, I've, often, I've been into mod-inspired music for a long time, and it was only actually reading this that I learned that mod is a short form for modernist. They were these very hip, urban, often a bit more affluent kids who were the real the vanguard. You think of the early Beatles. Real right? fashion forward. Real fashion for, I mean, if, if you dress up like a mod today, you're still hip, right? Yeah. Um, so, anyway. 
Now, um, quick interruption. Yeah. Lee, you're clearly a mod. Elena, are you more of a mod or more of a rocker? Um, do you have a leather jacket? I do have a leather jacket. Oh, yeah. She's a, she's a rocker. Yeah. <laughs> well, apparently, at these seaside resorts on these bank holidays starting around may of 1964 there are these violent clashes which break out like like youth riots mods and rockers sort of standing opposed to each other on either side of the street yelling obscenities at at passers-by throwing deck chairs and lawn chairs and you know looting shops and all of this kind of stuff now i actually my mom grew up in england she grew up in a small mining town uh, called Hartlepool in the northeast. Very small. Well, pretty much unknown. But anyway, uh, she was there in the 60s. So I asked her, just recently I phoned her up. I said, do you know about this thing with the mods and the rockers? She said, oh, yes. Uh, she wasn't part of it. She didn't go to these seaside resorts at that time. But she certainly remembers hearing about it, reading about it in the newspapers. Well, the funny thing is... And this is what brings me to Cohen and his dissertation, is that this never happened. I mean, what did happen was the bank holidays happened. And like in all the other bank holidays, young kids went up to these towns. And of course, of course, there was some horseplay. Surely there was a fight that broke out here or there. Surely people were rude to, you know, some adults, you know, trying to do their thing during the day and you get some kids coming up and saying stuff. There's nothing scarier than a group of kids. No, I know. It's it's really yeah, it's <laughs> the true. younger they are, the so scarier. Have, have you gotten to that age now? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, because Elena, I think yeah. you're the youngest of us. Have you hit the age I'm where... I'm there. <laughs> but I mean, as a female, you're always kind of there. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but the, what was so amazing about this was it was basically a complete concoction of the media. Mm-hmm. Now, most people weren't there at the seaside resort. So th- what they read in their morning paper is massive clash at Brighton, massive clash at Claxton, massive clash at right. wherever. And this is not just one bank holiday. The next bank holiday, the newspapers all show up and are expecting stuff and are even, in fact... Uh, generating the pictures like paying kids to pose go throw that stripe head chair right exactly and so Stanley Cohen uses this as his test case for this concept of a moral panic and he broadens it out to talk about all kinds of things that um, we've seen in the 70s 80s 90s he actually says that they're they're tend to be a bunch, um, a sort of a cluster of very typical tropes that reemerge over and over again. Uh, one of them being violent men. Another one being school bullying. Another one being the wrong drugs done by the wrong people at the wrong time. So that is to say, alcohol is a drug. But if you have a beer and you're a middle class family homeowner. Right. If you have a sherry at the club. Exactly. Right. It, it is that's totally fine. legitimate, but yeah. should you have a joint or whatever. Okay. Um, child abuse, uh, sex and violence, freeloaders. So um, if you were around in the early 90s, you would have heard this whole to do about welfare mothers. That was like mm-hmm. a thing that um, there was a certain segment of working class American women who are getting pregnant in order to freeload off the state and refugees. And so he talks about how there's a kind of um, hyperbolic representation of a threat Mm -hmm. by these groups in the media, sometimes started by something. So let's say, you know, with this mods and rockers affair, maybe there was a fight and maybe it really was witnessed by, but one fight does cannot be generalized into a mass movement. In fact, he is a quite a careful researcher and actually talks to these people. And the distinction that mods and rockers were different, like that they were opposing youth groups, was something that becomes important later, but at that time was not apparent. It was just like you just dress differently because right. you're riding a motorcycle. So right. the it, media it, was trying to set up this kind of 
culture and class war maybe in a way between these two groups yeah which or was pretending that it existed right and then it sort of became reality after that is what you're saying pretend yeah so yeah. after the fact after it all dies down there are then like subsequent youth groups that like have heard about this and bought into it right. who then go and try and reenact these events as though they are real I actually remember growing up in the late 80s early 90s where this stuff was taken as very serious you were a mod or you were a rocker mm -hmm. and if you were one you had chosen a certain allegiance and could no longer fraternize with the with the others right hmm. what well, well, makes sense i mean cohen says in the book the social reaction not only increases the deviant's chance of acting at all it also provides him with his lines and stage directions right totally yeah like, exactly. So you exactly. would read these newspaper articles about the mods and rockers. You'd look at your leather jacket. Yeah. Like Elena would look at her leather jacket and That's say, right. well, I guess a I'm rocker. a rocker. And then she would see Lee with his modern clothing and she'd think, I guess I got to hit Lee with a chain. Yeah. That's and right. said so right in this article. It's yeah. like it gives you an identity and a history that, that sort of reinforces that identity. Yeah. And I want to actually go back to uh, a point he, uh, Cohen makes right. Uh, uh, this is actually in the introduction uh, to the third edition. Calling, so this is a direct quote, um, and I, I'm no good at accents, so you're just going to have to <laughs> bear with me. Quote, calling something a moral panic does not imply that this something does not exist or happen at all, and that reaction is based on fantasy, hysteria, delusion, and illusion, or being duped by the powerful. Two related assumptions, though, require attention. That the attribution of the moral panic label means that the thing's extent and significant has been exaggerated. A, in itself, compared with other more reliable, valid, and objective sources, and or B, compared with other more serious problems. So that is to say that the thing, whatever the thing is, the event, is probably a thing. It's real, you know? Maybe somebody did freak out with War of the Worlds, and maybe somebody did get sick after being bitten by the, the assassin bug. And maybe there was a fight with the mods and the rockers. But already, and this is something I actually became much more sensitive to upon reading his analysis, merely by mentioning it in the newspaper, it elevates it to this really public level. It's again like a police officer saying there's nothing to see here. Now, if I was passing by and mm -hmm. wasn't going to look there and he says that, now I'm looking, mm -hmm. right? So there are then actual he go what i like about his work is that he is as a sociologist goes through trying to understand what are the social mechanisms how does this actually happen across the board so when we go from mods and rockers to we didn't talk about the seattle windshield experiment or, uh, sorry uh, 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 scare yeah um, that'll be its own minisode uh, there's the satanic panic of the early 80s. Ooh, uh, the Dungeons and Dragons panic there's the of Dungeons the 1980s. And that's such a good example because, like, did you play Dungeons and Dragons, Lee? Not really. I'm just going to assume, Elena, you didn't. I didn't. My, one of my sisters did. Oh, oh. Yeah. Because, like, there was such a panic in the 1980s, especially from some church organizations, mm -hmm. that Dungeons and Dragons was going to cause people to become satanic, to murder, to like lose track of what's real and what isn't real. Now, what makes that so fascinating to me is that I grew up in Orangeville, Ontario. And in Orangeville, Ontario, we actually had a double murder where two children, two oh, children wow. were killed with a sword. Oh my gosh. By somebody who, who was uh, a player of Dungeons and Dragons. Huh. Wow. Like that did happen, mm -hmm. unfortunately and tragically. But that didn't mean then that the moral panic about Dungeons and Dragons wasn't absurd and overblown and ridiculous. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, exactly. So, so Cohen then goes through um, five steps of turning an event, something that has happened, into something that actually we become collectively afraid of and stop reasoning coherently about right it's like an in a distinct event that happens but then is taken to seem like some sort of general pattern exactly yeah. and he actually says that that this is it it's the um there's a phrase that i wish i had uh, at the tip of my tongue it's not just this right, right? or it, it that this is in fact just a symbol for the larger cultural change that's happening right. you can't see that larger change but here's the evidence right. here's of it example. happening yeah so step number one in creating a moral panic is to define a threat 
Yeah, so here it is, freeloading welfare mothers or, and often we have to look at how it is that the language, and he talks about this too, when we, when newspapers define refugees as threats, what's the language they use? Things like flooded. You know, we are flooded with oh. refugees. There's an like it's well, a natural Trump, disaster. Trump exactly. when he was talking about Mexico as well, using what kind of language was he using? Talking about animals. Yeah. Talking about. And did he say infested or use some yeah, sort of infested? Yeah. So these 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 terms are very evocative. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they're very visceral. Yeah. yeah. And 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 so so that's and we define a threat. Yeah. The threat becomes in some way depicted, symbolized. Um, so, for example, one way to do this might be through, so, for example, after 9-11, the, the uh, outward appearance of being Muslim. Mm-hmm. You know, things like a headscarf, you know, now become, now become a kind of a symbol for a larger change in society about right. Islamic culture, undermining Western civilization. Obviously, I don't believe any mm-hmm. of this stuff. I'm, I'm trying to suggest this is how it can be depicted. That's how a moral panic starts to emerge in the social consciousness. Exactly. Then this generates public concern, which is legitimate if... I don't have direct experience with the larger Muslim community or with young kids reading comic books or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole thing about the newspaper is it mediates, or news as such, is it mediates a reality for us. And so I'm trying to find out what's going on with those other 7 billion people out there that Nathan mentioned. I don't know. So here I have this apparently objective source telling me what's up, and they have identified a threat they've symbolized it and now i get concerned right i mean i as an individual i remember right after 9 11 i'm just coming up with some examples in my own life right after 9 11 i was living in germany at that time i got a call from my grandmother who warned me not to go to any public spaces you know and it's just like she's just concerned because Mm -hmm. of a generalized threat that was out there it's in from her perspective legitimate I don't think it was if you do a critical analysis of it, but based on just opening the newspaper and being like, ah, there's something scary. Now, here's what I find interesting. For the moral panic to really get going, you need an official response. You need the the kind of adults in the room to get on board. The law courts, uh, the police officers, the journalists, the, the politicians. And what they then do is they create an official response here. A task force, a policy change, a legal change, whatever it is, which actually changes the community. Through legislation. Through legislation, but maybe also through the effects of the legislation or... Goodness knows. Or it could also be somebody rides into power in an election on the wave of a moral panic. There you go. Mm-hmm. By right. proclaiming themselves to be the like the crusader against that moral panic. Right. I, only I can fix this. Or like yeah. building a wall, for example. Like there building you go. a wall, for yeah. example. Yeah. So these seem to be the stages that all of these panics, and it's easy. I like, Nathan, your approach of starting 200 years ago, where... We have so much distance to this stuff that we can be a lot more critical about it and kind of laugh at the assassin bug panic, uh, you know, as something that's kind of silly. It's a lot harder, though, when you're in the midst Mm -hmm, of it. Totally. You know, I mean, just right after 9-11, it's hard when every single newspaper report is about tragedy, about death, about the, the, the generalized state of danger that we are. Well, do you remember the anthrax scare? Yes. Came Mm -hmm. right after September 11th. Yep. Right. And there was some guy somewhere who was mailing little bits of anthrax to newspapers. I mean, that guy did exist, Mm -hmm. but it was seen as this widespread phenomenon to the point that I remember there was a mall closed down in the United States after a white powder was found on a baby changing table. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Now, when they tested that powder, it was... Baby powder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. So do we do we need to do a follow-up ep- episode where we talk about some of these ones we've referred to but haven't gone in-depth about? In I terms think, of yeah, because we're, and we're actually... We're, we're getting along in time. Like, we this were, seems like a what? good What? I'm just pace. starting here. I know. <laughs> it's like I know. I'm yeah. kicking my shoes off. I'm just ready to get going. <laughs> because we want to talk about the Seattle windshield epidemic. We got to talk about that because it evinces all of this stuff. Yep. We got to talk about, I want to talk about seduction of the innocent. Oh yeah, we didn't even get there. The comic book scare. The comic book scare. So I think we'll we'll just have to do some mini-sodes on this. Okay. 
a couple things that uh, I would like to say, though, before we wrap this up. Now, we're putting this out, this this episode on mass panics <laughs> during, yes, during a, a mass massive, panic. well, during an epidemic, an epidemic. It's true. Like, I don't want to say that the COVID situation is a, is a mass panic no. or a moral panic. It's an epidemic. I will say the backlash against mask wearing is a moral panic. Yes. That's a good point. That's I'm going to make that argument. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah. Hold on. I had another thought as you were saying that, I mean, not only the anti-maskers, but some of the other conspiracy theories coming out of this, like with the like the idea of having to be microchipped to see if you have a vaccine or not, those also feel like moral panic-esque because this, this fear to like the way things are done or control of my body or too much information or lack of privacy, that seems like they all kind of fit with the anti-masking in a way to me. Yeah, because again, the idea of a loss of personal information, mm-hmm. that's a significant and genuine issue. But it then gets spun out into, oh, Bill Gates is going to right. give us vaccines, which then have microchips in them. Yeah. And it gets spiraled off into a kind of moral panic. Yeah. To... I, I have to admit, oh, okay, well, before I get myself into any trouble, I'm going to start with... I could tell um, from his expression yeah. <laughs> that he was about to get himself in trouble. I've got to get myself into trouble, so I've got to stop and say, and just start with saying that, um, you know, I, I I didn't want to talk about the pandemic that we're mm. in right now. I mean, you can the, uh, hear noises in the background because we're outside, we're social distancing, we haven't been able to be anywhere close to a studio in a, a long time because of the uh, pandemic restrictions. Uh, you know, I'm no epidemiologist and if experts in the room say that this is going to keep me and other people safe, mm-hmm. I am the first person who will follow along. However, having said that, I, I think it is monstrously difficult when you're in the midst of one of these events to know whether it is or is not a right. panic. Yeah. Um, and it actually is a, it, it, it brings up this broader question about decision making without all the information. I mean, I have a lot of information. Again, this is why I turn to experts, the WHO and whoever else. And, and, and they have qualified experts there to tell me stuff. But let us imagine, let us imagine just in the realm of fantasy that it turns out that we actually overreacted over the last six right. months. Right. Now, was that a bad decision? You know, like, was it the wrong thing to do then to shut things down, to shut schools down, to have people? I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, you can bring that back to the the idea that, you know, if you overreact, you're out in like uh, early humans out there in the wilderness somewhere overreacting to a noise in the bushes. We've given this example before. You're safer. You're safer overreacting because you survived versus saying, oh, it's probably nothing and dying. Exactly. Maybe maybe witches are all baloney. But maybe they're not. Yeah. You know? But so then it depends what is the impact of the the overreaction. Like if you're scared of something in the bushes so you jump off a cliff, that's a problem. Right. And so if you're scared of witches and so you set a bunch of humans on fire, that's a problem. Yeah. And of course there has been such a massive impact. I mean, we have all been extremely fortunate. Mm Mm-hmm. I know people who have lost their jobs because sure. yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of what's been going on with the, the reaction to this. I will say this. That's a question that I would maybe have asked myself a couple months ago. But at this point, I feel like the stats are in. And we've seen what has happened when when we haven't reacted. Right. We've seen what's happened to the death rate. We've seen yeah. what it's done. Even places like, like in Sweden. Sweden. Yeah, Sweden yeah. is out of control. Where they have a very high death rate and their economy has also crashed. Because they took no precautions. Yeah. Literally. Lee's thing got his thinking like, I'm thinking. On. I should not think out loud. So I'm just going <laughs> to stop. take a picture of Lee's <laughs> thinking face so we can post it. Do it again. Like, think again. I don't Lee. know. I, uh, yeah. Think again. <laughs> I think that I agree with what you're saying. And I think it's always a question that we should be, uh, we should be asking. Always. I, I just, I mean, I, again, I don't disagree with anything that you've said. And I, I, I keep reiterating that I'm fully playing along, following the rules and, and you know, all of that. But I, I always, I come back to 9-11 for me a lot. And, you know, those, those terrorist attacks were real. And Islamic fundamentalism is real. And, and, and Islamic fundamentalist terrorism is scary as hell and was increasing and all of those things. At that time, it would have, I look back at it now, 
And I'm like, that is a moral panic up and down, even though the terrorist attacks were real, all of the restrictions that were put into place. I mean, yep. nothing was ever going to catch another terrorist. And I, I know. Uh, and like, not only that, but the wars, yes. like the Iraq war, which resulted in the deaths of conservatively hundreds of thousands yeah. of humans, human beings. Has made was, the terrorism worse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and that was entirely made possible. That illegal, disgusting war was made possible because of the moral panic that happened after September 11th. September 11th was a real, awful, terrifying yeah. event that resulted in the deaths of thousands of innocent people. But could I see it at the time? I don't know. And this is where I just, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm just slightly agnostic, where um, I have often said off camera, off microphone, I've said, um, I don't want to talk about yeah, it because yeah. it's news. Right. And I yeah. don't, I don't understand. We like news. having the distance. We exactly. like being able to yeah. look back. I don't understand like it until the it's history. Arrogance of, yes. of being future people. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Thirty years later, I can laugh at the stupid things you guys did. Yeah. But right. while I'm in the midst of it, personally, I don't want to have a. Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess I don't know. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. No, I think that's totally fair. I think that's very, that's very smart of you. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes sense to ask the question. But as you point out, as you're asking the question, you're also listening to the experts. Yeah. You're also saying, I am going to socially distance. I am going to wear a sure. mask. I am going to shut things down. Yeah, yeah. But no, it's, it's, not, it's not a critique of what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's just a question for me about, I am just not sure if it, there's an element of panic or not. And I don't know until we're out of the situation That's and true. I can look back on it with that kind of calmness of 10 years distance. Yeah, I like the future it. smug. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I also think, Nathan, your point was really good. It's like, well, what is the impact of that panic or that yeah. response is it taking precautions or in the case of 9-11 is it you know like um soul searching yeah. as a country and saying how could something like this happen maybe there's some history we need to resolve maybe there's some relationships we need to fix instead of waging false wars you know like or, or having legislation that says things like we should have locking cockpit doors right that was very reasonable. Yeah. That was a very reasonable response. So it depends what your response is. Like in this case, taking precautions versus becoming, you know, showing racism against people from right. China because yeah, you're yeah, worried yeah. that they're bringing it here, you know, like... Or drinking bleach. Right, or drinking bleach. So I think it, our, our, our response does matter as well in sort of evaluating it. So we, we, we come to Douglas Adams' constant refrain in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Don't panic. But sometimes be afraid. <laughs> but sometimes panic. Like you should still dread. But <laughs> yeah. when you dread, dread sharp. Sharp, real sharp. Uh, so clearly we have to revisit a bunch of yeah. these, these yeah, things, and we will. We're gonna yeah. ha we've got a lot of episodes lined up now in this area where mm -hmm. we can revisit okay. this important idea of the mass panic and the moral panic. In the meantime, let's talk social media. We have a new thing that I want to talk about, Yeah. which is Elena has started to TikTok. Yeah, see, Lee won't even know what that is. And I think I... The way I used it in that sentence was completely <laughs> incorrect. I'll show you my TikTok videos later. But yeah, I'm on TikTok and it, I, I do direct people to our to our podcast Instagram. So maybe we'll have some new listeners from that as well. Yeah. So I'm going to direct people from the podcast to Elena's TikTok. Oh, well, thank you. So Elena, do you want to explain how people can find you? Oh, it's um, it's just my personal um, Instagram, uh, which is the handle is A-M-P-A-P-A-Y-A. -A -A -A. It's like M-Papaya. So yeah, you can find me there. Cool. It's really fun. We have an email address. Which is? Not doing it. Pod, oh my God. <laughs> podcast. The podcast at the uncoverup. Dot. Dot com? Yes. Really? Yes. yes. Podcast at the uncoverup dot com. I should have just gone with confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So email us. Um, and actually, can I give a shout out to our fan in Japan? Yeah. Uh, because we got a lovely email. George. Um, from oh, George, yeah, and George. Uh, uh, it was a real pleasure to read. It and was. I think motivated us to do this episode a little earlier than we might have. Just, you know, happy fan mail mm -hmm. really does reach us and make us feel good. So Thanks, thank George. you. We thank have you, the, George. We have the best fans. All we of do. All of the, the messages that we get sent from people, I really enjoy listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of them actually, like that, I remember Sockfoot. Sockfoot. Told us the, to do yeah, we went on like a three episode oh, man, binge. Yeah. yeah, we're already on episode four of our three part cryptid series. Yeah. I know we still are missing the New Jersey Devil. No, I no, did he that did one. one. Oh, <laughs> Lee doesn't listen to this podcast. I totally do, but I Nathan was it. just like motivated one day and just did okay. it himself. Well, I live in the bunker, so it's yeah. easier. Right. Yeah. Okay, so that was email, TikTok, 
Instagram. Exactly. Instagram. We're getting Instagram very close to me having to put a tattoo really? of a... Yes, we are. Wow, really? The more people we get on Instagram, the closer we get to me having to get a tattoo on my arm of a UFO. All right, so more people get on there at the Uncover Up uh, on Instagram. All yeah. right. And we have contests and stuff and like postcard giveaways. Yeah. and. Okay, cool. And you can see what we all look like. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to make a bad joke about the contest, how we could send them... Um, a letter in the mail with just flour inside, but <laughs> I appreciate that joke. <laughs> so are our listeners. We're not sure. going to do that, but I do, I do yeah. like my idea. Yeah, I like it too. Yeah. 